Uh, with that being said, uh, just pray for me. I'm anxious today. I don't know what's going on. All of my kids, God love them, um, have had some challenges this morning. I've had challenges. I've been chippy already, so your prayers are appreciated. I'm coming to the text again as a human being broken and in much more need of this than I'm ready to present it to you as nice and polished and tidy. So, brothers and sisters, it's good to be with you <laughs> and to come to God's word. Um, in his book, Union with Christ, Rankin Wilborn, L.A. pastor, describes what he really just calls a disconnect in the Christian life. He calls it the gap. It's a space between what you and I may read or find in the scriptures about God's ideal and his desire for the world and what we experience or see in the world. We read one thing and we live another. And, and it's corporate and personal. In other words, it's something we all feel together, we acknowledge together, but it's also something that we experience personally. See, not only is this observable as we look at the patterns of behavior of other people and the patterns of righteousness we read in the scriptures, but it's right at the level of the heart. See, I don't know about you, but I'm terrified that one day you'll all realize I'm a complete fraud. One day, I'm terrified. Somebody will tweet just the right thing, someone will email just the right thing, or something will happen publicly, or you'll just see for yourself, and you'll know that I'm not as good a pastor, father, husband, person as you think I am or as the Bible teaches me I'm supposed to be. I'm terrified. After all, when we look at the scriptures, the fruit of the Spirit come to mind as one of the ultimate pictures of what it looks like to live this life in Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And well, let's just be real. Not all of those are always blossoming in my heart. Not all of those are always blossoming in your heart, I imagine. Uh, business writer Seth Godin says, deep down, we're worried that we will be discovered as the frauds we know that we are. Yep, I think that's just real. That's just something that we all walk through. I think at some point we all feel this disconnect, this gap of reality and expectation of God's word and my own heart. It's what's most popularly known as the imposter syndrome. And it plagues us in our Christian life as much as anywhere else. The Excuse me, the late preacher, Stephen Olford, said it this way as he looked out from his pulpit to his congregation. He said, if you really knew what I was like, you'd never listen to me preach. He followed it up quickly, and if I really knew what was, you were really like, I'd never preach to you. You see, this gap grips us at a very deep and personal level. It's a matter of the interior life. It's what's really going on in my heart. And we read of trans, the transformative work of Jesus, what he is able to do, what he is capable to do, what he does throughout the entirety of the scriptures. We read about his gospel power. Then we consider our own development, our bouts with anger, our covetous impulses, our pride, our lust of the eyes and the flesh. And we're prone to wonder, how can I possibly change? Or, if we're really honest, am I really a Christian? If this is really what's going on in me, am I really a Christian? So it shouldn't be surprising to us that many Christian publishing houses um, and what Sky Jathani, a writer, calls the evangelical industrial complex, right, that's a mouthful, have given themselves over, these entities have given themselves over to answering this question for us, how can I grow? Their, their answer, buy this book, go to this conference do ministry this way. Download this act. Act like this celebrity. Act like this person. Act like him. Act like her. Then you will be like Jesus. Professor Karen Swallow Pryor 
decried this kind of reality in uh, an interview she had with the New Yorker magazine just last year. She said this, there's a whole genre of Christian self-help books that emphasize a Christianity that's more informed by the American dream and therapy than the Bible. My brothers and sisters, shouldn't the church have a different answer, answer than the prevailing culture about how we grow and about how we mature and how we develop? See, the seeds of God's design for transformation, I believe, are buried in the Old Testament and have germinated on through the new, but they're planted in some unexpected places. Consider the story of David, the future king of Israel, who steps onto this ancient battlefield against a giant named Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, the parameters of the battle were laid out. Goliath shouted, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Both the Philistines and the Israelites agree to the parameters of the terms of the battle. They do this in order, and it was common in ancient warfare, to avoid unnecessary bloodshed, to put forward a representative that whatever happened in this particular military conflict, in this particular moment between this one-on-one battle, that would represent the whole. That would be applied to the whole Goliath would represent the Philistines, and unexpectedly, the shepherd boy from an obscure town of Bethlehem named David would represent God's people, Israel. David wins. He claims that the battle belongs to the Lord, and all of Israel, this great scene in 1 Samuel 17, all of Israel brushes the battlefield like they won, like they had slayed the giant. You know, like a hype guy in the back who thinks that you're all at the concert for him, right, or for her. Like, that's the person. They're celebrating, they're excited, and they didn't do anything. Hear this. They all won because David was their representative. What's this? Why is this so instructive for us? Well, biblically, David is a primary forerunner, or what uh, theologians call a type of Christ. When we listen to the life and character of David, there are imperfect whispers of the nature of Christ himself. Think about it. Was not Christ the true shepherd from that same obscure town who represented humanity on the cosmic battlefield of the cross? You see, as David represented Israel and the victory was imparted to all of God's people by association, so too we are beneficiaries of a victory which has been won for us by our representative, Jesus Christ. This idea is known as corporate personality or more popularly as union with Christ. Those who are in Christ are so closely associated and joined with Christ that his reward, his nature are imparted to us by grace. We become like him. We, be, we become close to him. We become his. That means the gap which you and I face in this world and in our hearts, we do not face alone. Can I get an amen? We do not face that challenge by ourselves. This is precisely this, 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 this gap that you and I face, this is precisely what motivated Paul and Timothy to take great pains to write to their brothers and sisters in the first century in a city called Colossae, and it will be our primary text for the next few weeks. So would you bow your heads and pray with me as we go to God's word. Heavenly Father, we're coming to you in desperate need. And I pray, Father, that, that would not just be something that we say, but something that we are so familiar with. We are a people in desperate need. I am a man in desperate need. 
I do not have what it takes to, to meet this gap that we face of what you require and what real space, real time looks like about what you desire, what your will is, and so help us, God. When I come to your word, when we come to your word, we rightly see our sin. Your law reveals sin. Your word reveals sin. And yet, God, I pray that as we come to your word, that wouldn't be the full story. Oh, that's such good news. That's not the full story. That your word does not expose what your word does not heal. Your word does not convict where your word does not also comfort. And so, Father, would you do that great work of both movements of your word today? Would you expose sin and heal us and make us righteous? Father, even as your people, we ask for your help in this. Often we don't believe that we can change. We just think the old self is just too strong. Forgive us for believing you're so weak. Forgive us for not trusting, relying, and anchoring and hiding ourselves in you. So Father, help us as we come to your word. Would you graciously help me to be clear and responsible with your word? And as your word is proclaimed over your people, may we respond in obedience, may we respond in joy, and may we respond together. We ask that in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Uh, Well, we're coming off the heels of concluding a couple of weeks in the Ten Commandments, comparing it, seeing it fulfilled in the Sermon on the Mount, namely in Jesus. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at Colossians. This will be sort of a a flyover, if you will. So if after three weeks you're going to go, I think they didn't say everything that Colossians had to say, you will be right. You will be absolutely right. Three weeks and four chapters of a New Testament epistle is not sufficient time. I asked for four years to go through Colossians, and we decided otherwise. Um, I think that then would have been sufficient. Uh, But we're going to take about three weeks to do what really I think will be helpful is just this large overview of what this letter is really all about. And as we begin the Lenten season uh, at um, Ash Wednesday, we'll begin a few weeks in Lamentation, something I've never taught on before, so the elders and I are really excited to walk through that with you, although that seems a bit odd to be excited to lament, but you get the picture. Um, And and so the the nature of this particular letter, letter of Colossians is uh, to these Christians to encourage and admonish them. You imagine that. Paul takes time to write a letter to encourage them, but there's drama. There's still drama. There's still things going on that are in opposition to the gospel that Paul originally communicated. And so he's, he's coming to confront those things. Paul and his team caught wind of tension and even what we'll simply call a philosophy, a false philosophy, which was contrary to the gospel of Jesus In all likelihood, Jews from a local Colossian synagogue were defending their particular view of the Torah or of the law and of God himself in the way of the world. They wanted to defend this, and so they're speaking a philosophy with specifics that are refuted in chapter 2 and outlined in chapter 2 so that we'll get to know them a little bit more next week. This will include their views on circumcision, food, worship, baptism, all which are contrary to Paul's spirit-led encouragement and teaching of them. And so the purpose of writing Colossians is to both build up the church to encourage them, his church family, but also for the the sake of theological protection. So church in the square, it's good to approach this letter with those two expectations. We will be encouraged and we will be protected. We will be built up through the work and power and grace of Jesus because we all need that. We all need to be built up. We all need encouragement. 
especially in our faith. And we all need protection. The evil one would love nothing more than subtle inaccuracies to steer us away from the flourishing and fruit that God has in mind for us, his people in the northwest side of the city. So here's how the letter begins. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is a typical epistolary greeting, a way that Paul often began his letters. From the outset, though, we see that both Paul and Timothy, you notice in the first verse, will be communicating or introduced as the writers of this particular letter. Paul would have been easily recognizable to his first century listeners. They would have known his name, not only in Colossae, but in Laodicea, and a church that was meeting in a person named Nymphia's house that we find out about in chapter 4, which this is where the letter is going to mainly circulate. And so Paul is introduced to everyone um, in a particular kind of way, as an apostle by the will of God. Apostle is a specific term which does not apply to everyone then, nor does it apply to anyone else today. See, while every follower of Jesus is a minister of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a part of the priesthood of all believers, 1 Peter chapter 2, and a witness to the person and work of Jesus, Acts chapter 1, there are only, and there were only a select number of apostles. The primary distinction is though every disciple of Jesus lives and shares the gospel, apostles were uniquely called, gifted, and equipped to be definers or original articulators of the gospel. And so Paul is numbered among them. Timothy, on the other hand, bless his heart, is introduced as a brother. He's a brother. He's, he's Paul's mentee. He is less recognizable. And, and if you will, all of his authoritative association will be due to the apostleship of Paul. He is sort of coming underneath the authority of Paul. This is important because I think it's most likely that Timothy is the one who took pen to paper in writing this letter. We, we get different little clues here. One is the distinctiveness of the Greek language with which Colossians is written. The other is that it seems like Paul picks up the pen in chapter 4, verse 18, the last verse, and say, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. Now, let's not get carried away. Timothy did not just write a bunch of stuff and just get his, like, Paul to sign it, kind of like what you did for all of those field trips in elementary school, right? You fill out the paperwork and get mom and dad to sign it. You're guilty where you sit, right? But that's not what's going on here. Paul likely gave Timothy not only encouragement and an outline, but likely had conversations. They may have pushed edits back and forth to one another to make sure that what these two co-laborers were all about were on the same page in unity when they drafted and sent it by way of two people named Tychius and Onesimus, and they also sent along Philemon at the same time. So as this letter is being uh, sent all over the world, we should see, or all over this particular part of the world, we should see it as coming from Paul authoritatively using Timothy, encouraging Timothy used in his particular giftedness. And what I love about this, what I love about the nature and why it's important to understand the nature of the way that this letter is written, is that it's really instructive to us as brothers and sisters in Christ, to us as the church, the people of God. Because isn't it true, we think that the real work of ministry is left to those who are apostolic, who have this sort of calling or distinct giftedness upon their life. 
This isn't lost on me as the one who is the most loquacious and talkative person every single Sunday, right? That this, ultimately, we believe a select few professional Protestants. They're the ones who are tasked to bring about the good news to the people. I give you Timothy. I give you Tychicus. I give you Onesimus. I give you these people who you and I may have looked at and said, those are just brothers and sisters, and those are the people that God used to get his word all over the first century world. These are the people whom God calls. So don't be mistaken. Gospel calling is not a secondary blessing of God given to a select number of people. He generously graces this kind of calling upon the life of everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. We are all called to be ministers of the gospel. With this in mind, it's not surprising to know that Paul and Timothy are writing to their spiritual family. Notice the language that they use in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. They are eager to admonish and protect not just faceless people in the crowd, but their people, their family. Paul describes his family as those who are in Christ. In all the letters attributed to the apostle, he actually never once uses the word Christian or Christians. This is his favorite categorization of those who are followers of Jesus. He uses in Christ or a variation of in Christ over 160 times in his writings. This is the way that Paul understands our faith, our status before God. We are in Christ. It's Paul's way of defining union with Christ. As one theologian writes, every Pauline theme and pastoral concern ultimately coheres with the whole through their common bond, union with Christ. Essentially, everything Paul has to say runs through the lens of union with Christ. And this is what Colossians is primarily focused on. The the writers waste little time. Look at verse 3. They launch right into thanksgiving and encouragement, and we'll consider this in two portions, verse 3 through verse 8. We always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love and of the love, rather, that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. From the beginning, Since a man named Epaphras planted or started this particular church in Colossae, the Colossian Christians, these particular men and women had been faithful in loving each other well. Their reputation had gotten the attention of Paul and Timothy, and so they're writing on account of that, though they may not have even visited Colossae yet. See, it it may be that they visited there very briefly, but it's really clear from the letter that they're eager to meet them face to face, chapter 2, verse 1 tells us. And so even if they know some people, they don't know everybody. Perhaps the church had grown significantly since they had been there. And notice, though, the brand of encouragement that's offered. It's really quite foreign to us today. Notice the language that they use in verses 3 through 8 and the way that they encourage them. We've heard of your faith in Christ. We've heard of your love for all the saints. We've heard of your hope of the hope you trust in heaven. We've heard this comes from the world, word of truth rather, the gospel. We've heard the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. 
You see, often we believe that encouragement is about building up the self-esteem of an individual who is sorrowful or down on themselves. But these gospel writers see fit to encourage the church by telling them about who God is, about reminding them of the gospel, about reminding them of their hope in heaven, about these things that are unshakable, unchangeable in them. It's not about the specific individual. In other words, they're not writing the Colossian church and go, don't forget how awesome you are. Never forget it. You are awesome. They didn't do that. Says you got faith in Christ. You've loved one another. You have hope in heaven. You have a gospel that's bearing fruit. It's a much less practiced brand of encouragement that I think simply we'll call gospel encouragement. It's a way of not just looking at the individual, but seeing the work of God through and in that individual and highlighting that. Reminds us uh, of Jesus when he drew near to Paul. And Paul was in jail in Acts 23. If anyone had accolades, you could remind them of while they're in jail. Like, don't worry, Paul. Like, remember when you were almost dead outside of Lystra? You're going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. Remember when you wrote all those letters? It was so great. You're amazing. Jesus draws near to him and his presence with him reminds him of the character of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the power of the gospel that is not just something that Paul does, but something that is transformed and equips him. See, the encouragement is not that you and I are awesome, or that the Colossians in this case are awesome, but rather that God is at work. For the follower of Jesus, nothing is more encouraging. Nothing should be more encouraging for those who are in Christ than Christ is at work. And church in the square, let me just holler at you specifically for a minute. God is at work among us. Let's, let's, not, let's not mistake this. We, we joke all the time as a leadership team, we're not working a really good plan, and now look at all of the effects of that great plan. I have never felt less like a leader on an elder team and more like a steward in my life. Just a steward of what God is up to, curator of the stories that God is telling. Here are just a few things. Since Paul and Timothy took some liberties to encourage that church, let me just take some liberties and encourage you, my brothers and sisters. I've seen reconciliation happen in this church. Not reconciliation like I bumped into you, my bad, like I've sinned against you. I'm going to admit that and I'm going to wait for your forgiveness. I'm going to ask for your forgiveness and wait for that. Years-long sin has brought separation and sorrow in relationships and we've seen God mend those relationships and bring unity over the past 18 months. I've seen confession become normal. Just last week, I saw someone wait to take communion until they asked forgiveness from a brother or sister, and then they took communion. Who does that? Who actually takes God at his word and lives that out? I've seen addictions get swallowed up by Jesus in the past 18 months. Things that people used to lust after, he is transforming them and giving them a different disposition and different desires. We are becoming a more obedient church. I've seen peace persist through really hard conversations. Sometimes we bring stuff up that I just go, it would have been a lot better if you didn't bring that up because this is an awkward moment for me. Those things are being brought up and what the Lord is doing is meeting us in these difficult conversations, things that would otherwise have stayed in the dark and he's bringing unity. Unity only comes through honesty. So the Lord is at work doing that. We've seen people become Christians. Those who are not followers of Christ become followers of Jesus over the past 18 months seen salvation take hold of people's lives, in fact, right in the middle of Sunday gatherings. I've seen the Bible become more regularly the primary grounding for conversations. This has been wild. 
right? Because for us, for myself, like what I want to say is this is what I think, this is what I've observed, and keep it like very personal in eye language. Because when we keep eye language, we can't be responsible for whatever else happens, but when we ground ourselves in God's word, we're all accountable to it. It's really costly, but what, what God has been doing is that he's been making us a more biblically grounded church. So instead of just saying, here's what I think, here's what I feel, it's what's the Bible have to say about that, right? Here's what I believe God's word's saying, and let's meet together on this. Just so you know, this stuff doesn't just happen. This is a work of God's hand. Paul's not writing and just going like, so here's the stuff that just happens. I'm writing this to everywhere. No, God is at work. If you become more like Jesus, worship him because he did that. Thank him because he did that. We're not working some divine plan. So if you're like, what's your vision for the next six months? Let's just obey Jesus. Let's do that. He might go, that's not great leadership. I'm not a great leader. We're learning to be good stewards. We're learning to trust him in what he's doing here. It's been crazy. We can plan for this. You know, sit in a meeting, vision for church. You know what I really want to see happen? Everybody just repents of sin, including myself. I'll start talking more regularly about my addiction to pornography in college and seminary. It'll be great. Let's do that. That sounds awesome. Don't come up with that plan. That's God. He's so good. He's so good. See, what Paul and Timothy are observing here is what you and I are observing now among us. He is observing maturity. Let's just make it that simple. He's observing a young church that has recently been planted, becoming more mature in Christ. Thanks be to God. This is evidence of his hand. This is evidence of his work. When there's more peace in your marriage, worship God. That's a fruit of his spirit. When there's more joy in your relationships, worship God. That is evidence of his spirit. When there's more faith, when you, when you are facing a challenge and you are anchoring yourself, hiding yourself, and trusting God, worship God. Faith is evidence of his spirit. Because of this great work, flourishing begins to take place in the first century church. And by God's grace, flourishing will continue to happen here. It has this ripple effect for us. And what begins to happen is that it doesn't puff up the church. It doesn't puff up Paul and Timothy. It draws them to prayer. Isn't that instructive? It draws them into pray for one another as they see the work of God among them. They don't stop praying. They continue to ask for more. And in praying for more, I think Paul and Timothy give us a real clear picture of the pathway of Christian maturity. Look at it with me in verse 9. And so, again, this is Timothy and Paul writing, from the day we heard, we have not ceased in prayer for you, asking that you may be filled with, this knowledge, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The work of the Lord leads followers of Jesus to prayer. It's that simple. So if God is at work, don't pat yourself on the back. Church in the square, pray and thank him for it. It's a work of his grace. Let's not grow entitled. Let's not grow self-congratulatory. Let's grow worshipful. God, help us. Let's pray. Let's thank him. Let's rejoice and ask God, would you be so kind as to continue to extend these things to our community? Specifically, Paul and Timothy have been praying and asking that the Lord would increase maturity among God's people. This is still a young church, just like, just like we are 18 months into this journey. 
So as they are hearing the initial signs of Christian community and Christian maturity beginning to be shaped here, Paul and Timothy write to encourage and foster it to continue, asking that the Lord would fill them with knowledge, enable them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, or rather of the Lord, and that they would bear much fruit. Let's look at those three things separately. The first, found in verse 9, they ask that they would be filled with all knowledge of God's will. In Pauline literature, the will of God is explained in two different categories. One is God's word. In Romans chapter 2, we see this. And then God's spirit. It's Romans chapter 12. These two distinctives both lay claim throughout the Bible to God's sovereign will. This is how we get a picture of what his will looks like. That it's not, I just go to the Bible and do what it says, but I trust that his spirit is equipping me to do so. Nor do we just say, here's where God's spirit is leading me and not make sure that we are grounded in God's word. This is how we discern the voice of God's spirit. Is that those two are always working in tandem and in cooperation and in this beautiful harmony. God's word and God's spirit point us to God's will. And Paul and Timothy are praying that it would increase in the church. Secondly, what they say in verse 10, they ask that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Knowing God's will is foundational then to moving in such a way, to living and behaving in such a way that honors God. We cannot just live according to his will if we don't know what his will actually is. You can't please God without an understanding of his law and his word by his spirit. And so this is what Paul and Timothy are are writing about. So if we're curious about what we're supposed to do in our life, we need to grow familiar with his word, familiar with his spirit, and then submit to his spirit and obey his word. Thirdly, they ask, Paul and Timothy do, that they would bear much fruit in every good work. This idea of bearing fruit is consistent throughout the Bible so as, as the flourishing life. Perhaps the, the clearest depiction of this is John 15 when Jesus says, I am the, bri- the, the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Bearing fruit is not just the evidence or rather the, the living of particular works or actions or behaviors. It's also the result of those things. It's not just that we tell the truth, but it's that what is produced by a people who tell the truth is unity and peace and love and joy. That's evidence of God's spirit as well. Not just in our behavior, but in who we become. The result of these three requests in prayer of knowledge, of obedience, and fruit is somewhat surprising <laughs> If we continue to follow Paul and Timothy's line of thinking, it leads to more knowledge. So so the, the cycle, if you will, walk with me in this, is knowledge, obedience, fruit, more knowledge. It's the cycle of maturity that we're given. Because isn't it true, a lot of times we think about any kind of... Uh, steps in scripture or something like this, it would be knowledge, obedience, fruit, and some kind of reward, like something that you give me, like a nice house. All right, the knowledge, obedience, fruit, and obedient children, like children that don't act crazy. Knowledge, obedience, fruit, marriage. Knowledge, obedience, fruit, best job ever. Like this is how we often operate, but ultimately what the scriptures teach us, the reward of obedience is another opportunity to obey. There's another opportunity to obey. Knowledge, obedience, fruit, more knowledge, which leads to more obedience, more fruit, and then more knowledge. Are you tracking with me yet, church? That's the joyful life of Christian maturity. Why? Because what does the Christian want more than anything else? To know God. I want to know him more. And we know him more when we obey him and we see the evidence of his grace all around us. And therefore, more knowledge of him makes me want to obey him more. In other words, here's, here's how it goes. When we follow Jesus, we want to follow him more. See, so when you're disobeying and sinning and you're just going, I'm waiting for my heart to change and then I'll obey God. 
your heart begins to change when you begin to obey. And you begin to follow him and take him at his word, look at his word, and it begins to transform you from the inside out. I see that this is good for my soul. See, the more that we know about God, the more that we want to know him, and the more that we follow the will of Jesus, the more we are able to follow the will of Jesus. This is the process of Christian maturity. So what we understand about Christian maturity then is it's altogether different than every other brand of maturity. See, Christian maturity is not an increase in independence, but an increase in complete dependence upon Jesus. Christian maturity is an ever-increasing dependency upon God himself. How does that begin? By setting our eyes on Christ himself. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. To, to grow in dependency, we must see the all-surpassing worth and beauty of Jesus. We need to look at him. And so the writers draw our attention to what's known as this sort of preeminent hymn of Christ, and they pack a great deal of understanding about who Jesus is within these five verses. And we'll break it down in two distinct ways about what Paul and Timothy are saying here. First, they're saying that Jesus is ahead of creation. That's what he... They communicate in verses 15 through 17. See, to be a human being is to be made in the image of God, but Jesus Christ is God's image. And so as such, he is the word made flesh. The son is active in creation, and he remains preeminent over creation as the head of creation, supremely before in worth, in knowledge, in existence, yet supremely over as the one who has controlled all things. See, he has entrusted creation to us as stewards, but he remains over creation sovereignly as Lord. See, we should be very careful. There's a huge difference between stewardship and ownership. Jesus still owns creation, though he has allowed us to steward it, though he has called us to steward it well. And in such, when you look at verse 17, he holds it all together. See, this is, this is how dependency begins to grow in one very practical and clear way. When we think that the world is falling apart, and then we try to hustle to hold it together with our own devices and our own effort and our own sort of thoughts and behaviors, we go back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, and it says, he holds all things together, not you. Not me. He's the head of creation. Not only so, but he's the head of the church, is what verse 18 through 20 teach us. As Paul instructed in church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he gave all of these different examples of different parts of the body. Right? If you remember the foot, the hand, eye, the nose. If we notice throughout chapter 12, he never says who's the head. Why? Because Jesus is. Jesus alone is sufficient for that role is reserved to the one who is holy, who is prominent, who is authoritative, because Jesus alone is head of his church. This is both a metaphorical sense and a spiritual sense, that he is supreme, our supreme senior pastor. He is our great high priest. He is our sacrificial lamb. He is a mediator between us and the heavenly father. And so the writers move from this picture of headship of creation to this headship of the church toward a fulfillment of all these gospel works. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these 
these long-awaited ideas of God's community. He is the head of God's new covenant people, the church. And he is the head in as much as that he is our representative of a new creation that is bursting in and through the life of the church into this particular place here and now. This is the unfolding of God's gospel plans and only take place when Jesus is the head of his church. And this is why he's head of the church, because he's the founder He's the saver, he's the sustainer, he's the purifier, he's the lover, he's the shepherd, he's the sustainer of his people, the church. See, the fact that Jesus is the head of the church is all about this idea of representation. To be the head is not only to be supremely over, but to be the representative of. Consequently, the two categories demonstrate to us that Jesus is truly the one who has entered the battle for us. Sin was our battle to fight. Satan, our foe to conquer. Death, our consequence to endure. Yet Christ takes on the fight, defeats our foe, swallows up the consequence through the gospel, and he victoriously imparts to us the fruits of his victory that we might be righteous, that we might be whole, that we might be secure, that we might be mature, that we might be holy and blameless before him. See, in Christ. We're made like Christ because he has united us with himself. He's our representative. He's the one who makes us mature. In that wild, he says, be mature and I'll do it. I'll do the work. He never commands something that he does not always also supply the means to accomplish. However, in our sinfulness, don't we reject Jesus as our representative? This is what sin actually is. It's the rejection of Jesus as truly the head and truly the representative of his people. See, biblically, we are born in Adam, not in Christ. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 5. See, by nature, Adam was our head and our representative. And at the fall in Genesis chapter 3, he and Eve attempted to represent themselves. They didn't go to God's word. They didn't obey his will. They represented themselves. They did not hide in their relationship with God nor confide in his word. They think and act according to their own ideas, their own process. They want they wanted to be something. They wanted to be gods. They wanted to be independent. And so on the cosmic battlefield of the Garden of Eden, the first human beings fell epically short of holiness. Therefore, what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is, for as in Adam, all die. We might say that we are born with sin fully grown in us. In our sinful pursuit of earthly brands of maturity, we continue to allow Adam to be our head or pursue him as our head in trying to be our own representative. And so here our writers convey a similar idea in Colossians. Like us, they used to think that they could represent themselves. Look at verse 21. After this incredible display of the character of Christ, look at verse 21. And you, who, were once, alien, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds... We see for the Christian, this reality of alienation and hostility and evil is a part of the old self, crucified with Christ. However, the power of that old life continues to tempt us to represent ourselves every single day. What's that mean? Let's break it down in just our own ideas of maturity. It comes down to that for us. Today, more than ever, we believe and even assume that it's common knowledge that maturity is increased independence. In other words, the older we get, the more we think we should and must be able to do more things all on our own. We believe our freedom, our identity, our independence comes through autonomy and disconnection from others. As a prevailing culture, we are prone to think that manhood and womanhood and personhood is about self-sufficiency, being self-made and not dependent on anyone, let alone on Christ. And so, as a people, 
we are prone to measure maturity based upon diminishing needs. Stay with me, church. Diminishing, the less need I have, the, the more mature we believe that we are. This is why we are so slow, even in Christian community, to admit we have a need. I'm not telling anybody because as soon as they know I need a ride from the airport, they'll hate me and think I'm not self-sufficient. As soon as I confess sin in this moment here, they'll know that I'm in need. They'll pray for me, and I like to be the person that prays for others, right? As soon as I admit that I have a financial need, ah, that's really uncomfortable. I, I like to be the one that supplies. It doesn't matter what you like to be. Who are you? You are a creature in need. I am a creature in need. See, this is all because we have this view of maturity. It's not only in our hearts. This is even in psychology. Psychology defines maturity as the ability to respond to the environment, being aware of the correct time and location to behave, and knowing when to act according to the circumstances and the culture of society the one that lives in. That's crazy. I need to know. In order to be mature, I need to know the exact right response in every cultural situation that I'm ever in. That's a, that's a psycho. Like, that's a crazy person that is constantly thinking and weighing. What is the right thing? This is what I do when I'm trying to be perfect. I want to make sure. I have so many conversations with my wife. I love you, Laura. Oh, man. I want to make sure that in a hard conversation, I put together the most brilliant sentence possible that says, I am neither sinning nor am I assuming. I am just perfect. I'm telling you exactly what you want to hear, and it's so good footnoted a statement in my conversation with my wife. Like, what? what is that? It's a belief that if I show a chink in the armor, if I show need, then I'll be viewed as not mature, not as one who has it together. Here's the lie. We believe the more we represent ourselves, the more mature and whole we become. The more we stand for ourselves, here's the truth. It is only by being utterly dependent upon Christ, our head, our representative, that we become who we are. This is the work of clothing in righteousness. It's where the, the writers go next in verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that one day Jesus will present us to himself without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. We will be whole in him. See, this whole time we've been talking about Christian maturity, but now in this last portion of the passage, Paul and Timothy actually employ this particular word. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that has been given to, you, to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that powerfully works within me. Mature in the original language is the word teleos. It means whole or complete. The form of the sentence is first person, plural. In, in other words, we language. 
The writers are including themselves in this work of maturity. And the word present, though, in verse 28, is in a particular verbal tense, the aorist act of subjunctive, meaning the past present. Therefore, the writers are saying something about the future with the assurance of the past. Am I preaching to you yet? Something about the future with the assurance of the past. Though it hasn't happened yet, maturity is as good as done for those who are in Christ. How can they speak with such certainty? Because the word mature is singular. So the sentence structure is plural, but the key word teleos is singular. And it's found in this accusative form, so it's emphatic and it's clear. It's the focus because it's Christ's maturity. It's not a maturity that we all have. It's a maturity that we all have in him. Christ himself is the one who is whole. Christ himself is the one who is mature. Christ himself is the one who is complete. This is why the New Testament writers use this very familiar and connected word, telos, to communicate about the age to come. The fullness or finish or completion of all things, when it is whole, means that the church will be whole as well. The scriptures tell us we've got to become like children to become mature. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. A child is utterly dependent upon their parents or whomever is caring for them from the very moment they are born. And we as Christians spend much of our Christian walk acting like we're not children. And yet all the time the scriptures point us back to that disposition. Their whole world is defined and understood through the lens of mom and dad. Food, physical protection, order, understanding, their hope to even have their next breath is not based on their hard work and their self-making, but rather their rebirth. The child understands that it is to be born again in Christ and in Christ when we will be presented mature and valid as a son or daughter of the Most High God. When we learn to trust our desires less and God's spirit more, that's maturity. When we learn to go to our thoughts less and God's word more, that's maturity. When we learn to demand controlling things on our own less and surrendering to God's control more, that's maturity. When we learn to stop chasing our dreams and pursue the kingdom, that's maturity. When we learn to love the things of this world less and the things of God more, that's maturity. When we learn to enjoy drunkenness less than righteousness, deception less than truth, entitlement less than intimacy, when we see the things, these things decrease and the things of heaven increase in our hearts and in our church, that's maturity. And by God's grace, be encouraged. This is happening. Therefore, no matter what befalls us, know, my brothers and sisters, in Christ Our wholeness is inevitable. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of your word that we will be made whole in Christ because we are in Christ now. And so would you continue to give us that joy, that celebration, that victory, that understanding of who we are, that we might live in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, according to his will, according to your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The reason that we know that we are whole is because we come to this table. This table represents for us the way in which Christ has made us whole. He's made us whole by giving himself. He doesn't give us a plan. He doesn't just give us ideas. He gives us himself. And so we come repenting, we come confessing our sin, knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So brothers and sisters, come. Come in such a way where we're confessing the truth of our own hearts and the truth of our allegiance to Jesus and the power of his gospel to make us whole 
If you're not yet a follower of Christ, we ask that you would abstain. That wholeness is not part of your story yet. But if for some reason, through the song, through the prayer, through the word that you heard today, the Lord is drawing you to himself, we'd love to talk with you more about that, either right now or after the gathering. So let me pray for us as we come to taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, be honored, be glorified. You're the one who is at work among us. You are making us whole. You are making us a mature people. So have your way in us. We thank you for the cross that makes this all possible. Where our foe was defeated, where our battle was won, and where our consequence was paid in full by you, Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come as soon as you're ready down the middle aisle. Thank you.